Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for allowing us to assemble together. Lord, we just ask now for your blessing upon each part of the service, especially the preaching of your word. Help us as we investigate these things, much of which, Lord, we just cannot know, but what is written in your word, and we ask that you would guide our seeking, that we would not uh, rest in our own understanding, but in your words. We ask you to encourage us to serve you more. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And take your Bibles, if you would. Let's go to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. And as I'm counting, this is the 29th lesson that we've had. And uh, we are going to be treading through some very uh, difficult territory here. But uh, a few of the things I hope uh, we'll be able to see and learn as we study the book of Revelation, the Bible, we go back to Genesis, I mean, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, I don't think we'll get to Genesis chapter 1 tonight, but uh, in Revelation chapter 1, there is a blessing promise to those who study the words of this book, talking about uh, Revelation. And last week, as we started chapter 8, uh, we were shown the example or the physical picture of our prayers and there is an awful lot of challenge. I don't know about you, but uh, there's an awful lot of challenges in here if God actually takes our prayers and uses them as incense upon the golden altar before the throne. What kind of prayers do we offer before God? And we need to be thinking about that and making sure that as we pray to God, we're not just saying our prayers, but we are truly worshiping God in prayer, uh, that our prayers are worthy of his smell as he uses the most sensitive of all the human senses, that they would be pleasing to God. And I've heard this used often sometimes God allows us to pray and to pray and to pray because he wants something to offer on that altar. Uh, he wants there to be something there. And uh, don't, uh, don't take uh, the idea that prayer, again, is something that makes God do things or something that empowers God to do things. That is not the part of prayer. Prayer does not change God. He doesn't need fixing. Amen? Uh, I know sometimes people get the idea, and I've heard many over the years, uh, and I can't say there hasn't been a few opportunities where I've been tempted. Well, God, maybe, maybe you could just... And then I think, of, wait a minute, prayer is not to instruct God. He doesn't need help. Prayer is to a surrender of my will to his. That is the picture of the altar. And now, as we've set the 
the space here, we talked about the first pause here or the first stop in the action. And, and as we go through the book of Revelation, we, we have to, at least in our human understanding, put this in a chronological order because it just has that flow to it. We see the word then and after and and all of these time words put into the book of Revelation. It is interesting in chapter 1, Jesus himself gives us the outline. He says, the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, of course, uh, the letters to the churches, chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, the things which shall be hereafter, uh, chapters 4 through the end of the book of Revelation. Chapter 8 is the breaking of the seventh and last seal upon the book that Jesus has taken out of the hand of him that sits upon the throne and everything stops. The four angels, it says, are holding the four winds of the earth that they blow not on the earth. Uh, a warning is given to them, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, verse 3 of chapter 7, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And we spent a little bit of time here, and I'm hoping in, in the uh, as we go through the rest of chapter 8, that we're going to walk through the information that is here, and then we're going to go back and, and try to uh, assimilate it in a way that we would be able to see the flow of the book of Revelation. But the note that I'm trying to bring out here is when it comes to the book of Revelation, everybody wants to spiritualize, is one word they call it. Allegorize is the correct theological term that means where you look for hidden, mysterious meanings that aren't in the words. And one of the reasons why we do not do that is if there is an allegory in the Scripture, we, we believe God's going to let us know about that. And yet there will be some things as we look here that we'll see, and, and I think we'll have some understanding that... Uh, that God, when he is talking here, we are being told the story through the eyes of a man who was alive in the first century A.D. He never saw many of the things which you and I take into account every day. How many of you have ever seen, uh, I mean, how many, is there anyone here who has not seen a picture or a movie or a combination of a nuclear explosion, nuclear detonation. I mean, everyone has seen that. Try to explain that to someone who lived a hundred years ago. If you could just put that, in, put yourself, and, and we're not pretending sci-fi here, but if, if we could just go back in time and talk to the Apostle John and try to explain to him about one bomb, of course, gunpowder wouldn't be invented for another uh, 1,200 years and wouldn't be used in the way it was for 1,400. And so how are you going to explain? 
that we take matter, a heavy element, a heavy piece of metal, drop it out of a plane, and an entire city disappears, and everybody in it. How would you explain that? How would a first century man seeing something like this explain it to the other first century people that he is writing to? I mean, this is part of the challenge that we have as we go through the book of Revelation, seeing that we live now in the 21st century proper uh, I don't know if you got involved in the argument that the 21st century start in 2001 or the year 2000. Uh, I don't care. Amen. <laughs> it started, we're well into it, and, and you can sit there and argue about dates. But as we read these things, we have everything stopping. In verse 3 of chapter 7, the angels are told not to hurt the sea. They're not to hurt the earth or the trees. So when we get to Revelation chapter 8 and it starts talking about trees and grass and the sea and the earth, well, maybe it's just talking about those things. This is what we mean by a literal interpretation of the scriptures. And so let's start our reading here in verse 6. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first angel sounded, and there followed hail. And fire mingled with blood. And there were cast upon the, and they were cast upon the earth. So as the first trumpet sounds, we have a mixture of hail and fire mingled with blood being cast Upon the earth. Now, as hard as I try, I can't imagine that. But does anybody remember where something similar to this happened? As recorded in the scripture. In the book of Exodus, there was a plague of hail and fire. It was great lightnings. How many of you have ever been in a real hailstorm? I mean, most hailstorms are about the size of hailstones, are about the size of peas. And believe it or not, they will destroy a car, can destroy a car. Uh, there has been occasions where there have been softball sized hail. And it has knocked planes out of the sky. I mean, it has done all kinds of unbelievable things. You have hail and lightning. It says mixed with blood. And someone said, well, how could that be talking about physical blood? And this was cast upon the earth. But I want you to look at the result of this. A third part of the trees was burnt up and all green grass was burnt up. 
Now, could you imagine one-third of the forest of the world? Now, I'm not into uh, the destruction of the environment and, and all of these things, uh, but I'm not a tree hugger either. Uh, I, I don't believe that man should stop living because... There's a darter snail in the irrigation ditch that might be adversely affected by lowering the water level. I like the question that was asked. How many of you remember the um, all those, the spotted owl out in the Northwest Territories that destroyed the lumber industry, put thousands upon thousands of men and companies out of work here in the United States and you know what happened when that, when those lumber industries were shut down? They started cutting down the rainforest in the Amazon and uh, whatever forest is left in Africa and other third country parts of the world to supply the timber that wasn't being cut down here. And the whole thing was that this little spotted owl could only survive in old growth forests. The only problem with that was they found a whole family nesting and giving birth to young in a, in a Kmart sign out there somewhere. And by the way, if they could only live in old growth forest, just think about this. What did they do until the forest got old enough for them to live in it? You see, it's just silly reasoning. God did not create the world for you and I to protect it. He's doing that. And if you have any questions, read the history of Lake Erie. It's an amazing, amazing thing. The lake was declared dead in the 70s. And now they're feeding people from the perch in the lake and nobody's dying. Uh... It's an amazing, and you know what? It wasn't some huge thing. They just stopped pouring the sewage in, and the lake mysteriously cleaned itself up. You know, I love a God that's big enough that he will not be destroyed by man. Amen? But imagine a world where one-third of all the forest is destroyed. Can you imagine the news media headlines and all the green grass? Now, what happens when animals who live on grass don't have grass to eat? They die. And what happens to the people and the other beings who depend upon the grass-eating animals for subsistence? I mean, we are talking about the entire food chain of the world being totally upset. Now, we are, again, just thinking God does not need our weapons of mass destruction to accomplish His will. But what would happen if one of these crazy nations got a hold of a half a dozen of these large nuclear weapons and donate, detonated them in the atmosphere instead of on the ground. 
there'd be all kinds of things just like the book of Revelation is describing happening and the radiation could easily. Uh, the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki are rated at basically one megaton. We have warheads in our arsenal that have ten heads on top of one missile, each one of them independently targeted, each one of them ten times more powerful than what happened at Hiroshima. That's just one missile. I'll tell you what. Is it really that hard to imagine this kind of catastrophe burning up and destroying every green thing on the face of the earth? And what would be the meteorological or the weather ramifications of having this kind of heat dissipated in the atmosphere at a very short period of time? Because what causes a hailstorm is way up high in the atmosphere... The rain circulates and begins to freeze and uh, uh, conglomerates around dust particles until it becomes a ball of ice big enough that it can no longer be sustained by the current of air and has dropped tens of thousands of feet and, and will give you a headache if you are uh, unlucky enough to be under one of those things dent car roofs and hoods and smash out windshields and windows and, and do all kinds of things. Imagine, and this is given as the first trumpet sounds. There's no time period kind of implied here as with the breaking of the seals, but it does seem to be a little faster in, in, in uh, time than the seven seals. And the second angel sounded in verse 8. And as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And a third part of the sea became blood. And a third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third part of the ships were destroyed. Now this is the second. And we're going to see this one-third repeated over and over and over again during the trumpets. You say, what is the significance of that? Uh, one part out of three is all I can tell you uh, what it means. And, I mean, it doesn't take much imagination to think about a great mountain of burning fire as you see the mushroom cloud in your head. Cast upon the sea. It says the sea is turned into blood. The sea became blood. Now, does that mean the sea became physical blood? God could certainly accomplish that if he so chose. Or it could simply mean that the sea became very thick, very dark, and of a blood red color. And one-third of the sea. Now, it doesn't say one-third of the seas, but it implies that these things are worldwide in their scope and sequence. 
But we have death to all living creatures in this third of the sea that is affected. That's not too hard to figure out. And one-third of the ships, whatever ships were in the world, one-third of them happened to be in this part of the sea, and it was, and they were destroyed. Uh, if you could, uh, I mean, we, we talk about this, and uh, my first thought goes back to World War II, when we had the Nazi submarines, the battle for the Atlantic, trying to sink the ships that were supplying the British Isle, the last uh, stopper of Nazism in Europe. Hitler had gone east into Russia. He had gone west the whole way to the Atlantic Ocean. All of Europe was under his heel, under his control. And we were supplying Britain, and they measured the ship sinkings in hundreds of of thousands of tons of ships and supplies. We used to have a man that attended our church years ago. He sailed merchant marine during World War II. They were producing... What we had to do was we had to make ships faster than they could sink them. And eventually we stopped the threat of the... slowed down the threat of the submarine, but... Imagine one-third of the shipping gone. The flow of oil that comes, that keeps everything moving, would be brought to a standstill. Let me tell you, wars have been fought over oil. But, and a great part of World War II was fought over natural resources and the oil and all of those things, those of you that are, are from Romania will remember the oil fields in Palesti were the, were the center of what kept Hitler's war machine moving. And when he lost that, it was an incredible thing. But here the second trumpet sounds and this great mountain of burning fire is cast into the sea. The sea became blood. One-third of all the life in the sea died. One-third of the ships were destroyed. We can picture things like this in our minds. This is going, these events could really happen. Could a first century man seeing this in his mind really comprehend how this could all be happen, how this all could occur at a moment in time? Probably not. It would be too fantastic for him and yet he is just describing what he sees. And before the, the, uh, uh, the lingering sounds of the second trumpet cease, we have the third angel sounding in verse 10. And there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. How many of you have ever seen a picture of a missile being fired? It comes down through as a 
looks like a burning lamp. Would look like a star falling from heaven as a burning lamp. And again, we have this thing called nuclear fallout. When the tsunami rocked Japan, what was their number one concern? People would be poisoned by the radioactivity from the reactor in the waters. Does that sound like something that could be? I mean, as we've said before, and I'll say this many times, God doesn't need nuclear fallout to make this third trumpet happen, but you and I can picture and understand these things in our mind, and we can see that how this could actually be accomplished in an understandable and reasonable fashion, not that a third of the waters being polluted with nuclear uh, uh, waste and fallout would be reasonable, but this is what God said happened, and people died because of the waters. An interesting thing, I didn't put it in here because I uh, only heard this in a sermon many years ago. Uh, I haven't found any resource where I can check it out. I think I even talked to Zach about this once several years ago as we were going through the book of Revelation, but he claimed that uh, the Russian translation of Wormwood is Chernobyl. Interesting thought. Uh, Just throw that out there. I'm not sure it quite works out that way, but the idea of bitter water and the word wormwood refers to a series of plants that was very bitter, but this bitter water is deadly. Coming in contact with water, it doesn't necessarily say uh, here, it says that... uh, And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Contact with the waters caused death because of the bitterness of the water, we might say, because of the radiation and the fallout that would be absorbed in the water. It's not too hard to imagine. And what? how many here are children of the Cold War era? Uh, I remember them having drills in school where we would get out of our chairs and put our heads under our desk and and they would sound the sirens. Anybody else remember those things? And and, uh, this is what we were told. Now, we have a sign on our building. It's been here ever since. Fallout shelter. Uh, Let me tell you something. There is nothing worthy of that title in this building. There is no place you can go Uh, I don't know why the title was there, because in the basement, we have windows. Um, There there is no sealed area on this property. Now, I was told that I can't take the sign down, so it's still there. We'll just let it rust away. Um, But uh, if anything like that happens and you're still alive, don't come here, because there's no more protection here than there is in your living room. Uh, scary thought now, isn't it? And I've often wondered as I grew up, what in the world crawling under my desk was going to do if the Soviets dropped a nuclear weapon anywhere near uh, our school building? Uh, But it was just something that we had to do. And one-third... If we understand this correctly, one-third of the fresh water supply of the earth is gone in a moment of time. You talk about 
people aligning. And, by the way, you talk about a reason for the surviving members of the world to turn over every uh, item of economy, even to a loaf of bread, to the control of the government to distribute it evenly among people who are aligned with that government, would not something like this cause that to happen? Because things would be so sparse, there would be so many shortages that everybody would say, for all of us to survive, we must turn everything over to the man the Bible calls the beast. We've got one more trumpet to sound in our study tonight. It says, and the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. Now, um, oh, I, I'm not into movies, but they made a movie, oh, eight or ten years ago, I think it was called The Day After. And it was talking about what would happen if we had all-out nuclear war. And one of the scenarios that was presented, I never watched the movie myself, but I, I was interested in the science and read some articles about it, was what is called a nuclear winter. How many of you are familiar with that? Where a part of the atmosphere would be so congested, full of debris and dust and and things from the explosion, the nuclear explosions blowing this up into the atmosphere, that when this dust cloud passed between the surface of the earth and the sun as it is rotating, it would completely block out the radiation from the sun. The temperature would drop anywhere from 80 to maybe even 100 degrees or more in hours. And because everything would be absorbed by the dust cloud. And they even talked, if I remember reading correctly, about certain portions of the day being completely, complete and total darkness as this cloud of dust and debris would pass between that sur the surface of the earth and the sun. And the same thing would happen in the night. And by the way, we have Joel's prophecy about the moon turning to blood. And uh, one of the early Arab, I mean, Arab, where did that come from? One of the early Jewish rabbi scholars, whatever, wrote that God would use eclipses. But another commentator writing in the 1600s said, no, it would not be from the eclipse of the sun as... Adam ben Ezra, or whatever the name of the guy was, wrote, uh, it would be from the clouds of smoke of the burning cities. Now, this was somebody who wrote in the 1600s. And that the dust and the swirling dust would make the moon appear to be blood. I'm not going to argue with that. The edge of the cloud of this, the edges of this dust cloud of this big band of particles contained in the atmosphere would swirl and move and make the moon look as if it were no longer a solid thing in the color of blood. 
You say, well, now you're getting spiritual here. No, I'm, I'm just giving you one physical explanation of how the eyes of a first century man would look at the moon and say it was turned into blood. It's, we're, we're trying to stay within the realm of the literal, using literal events and things that we understand in our mind. And, of course, Peter reminded me, he said, every, every generation since the book of Revelation has done this. Yeah? And we'll join the crowd. Nobody can do it better than we can. Amen? Because our scenarios aren't only in agreement with the Scriptures. We understand and know the means by which they could be accomplished should it happen. People talk about signs of the times. I, I have not looked for signs of the times, nor will I ever look for signs of the times, because the Apostle Paul said we were already in the last days. And the fact that every generation of Bible-believing Christians has said it's going to happen in my lifetime and use their understanding to explain that just says amen to what the Apostle Paul said. Now, if John Gill was close in the 1600s, he's the one that wrote about the smoke from the burning cities. How much closer are we in 2013, 2012? Uh, and yet John saw these things about 100 A.D. And he's trying to explain them. Now, you can get caught up in all of these things. And I've... Um, read some of the stuff here, talks about, well, sometimes the Bible talks about a star falling from heaven talking about an angel. Well, yes, but this star was as a burning lamp, and when it hit the uh, um, sea here, the sea became blood. Angels don't do those things. But a nuclear weapon just might get that pretty well accomplished. Now, might it not? Or... NASA has hoped for years. Asteroid impact with the earth. And don't tell me they're not hoping for it because they need something to justify the budget. Uh, they, you know, they're worse than the hurricane people during the hurricane season. Oh, the biggest storm that ever. And you, did you notice that one, the big storm really did hit, Katrina really did hit? Nobody was ready for it. Everybody knew what was going to happen. It's what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. Nobody's going to be ready. And so, we now have gone almost through the chapter 8, just working through the details of this chapter. In verse 13, And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by the reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Now, if you've ever read a, any book on the book of Revelation, you have the... The seal judgments, as we have gone through them, seals one through seven. The seventh seal is actually the seven trumpets. The last of the seven trumpets, the last three, are pronounced as woes here in Exodus, in, well, 
my mind is just flying all kinds of places tonight. In, in Revelation chapter 8, they are pronounced as three woes. And we're going to go through um, the, the next several chapters here. And this is where the book of Revelation is going to start getting complicated. Because God is going to put some pauses in here. Some of the pauses will be right in the middle of a chapter. He's going to give us some history here. He's going to go back uh, and give us some history of things that happened before the book of Revelation. And almost in the same verse, give us prophecies of things that are yet to have happened. And so uh, we're, we're going to try to study uh, the word of God. But we want to, and what I've tried to tonight is to keep us in the realm of a literal, solid understanding of the words of the book. Because it's interesting, in just the last few moments here, that people are always wanting to spiritualize the Word of God. They're always wanting to change the words and try to make them say things well, for lack of a more polite way to put it, that agree with them. Why are there so many religions? Why do different religions fight wars with other religions? I remember meeting a man. He was a Medal of Honor uh, recipient during World War II. He was part of uh, our troops that were first to cross the Rhine he said, we were in a boat. And he said, we were going across the Rhine. We were the first American troops. And we were trying to secure the other side. And he said, the bullets were flying all around us and people were dying. And he said, I could hear the Germans praying and asking God for safety. And he said, I want you to know I was praying and asking God for safety. He said, I just don't know which ones God heard. Was, was his little statement. And um, from what I was able to talk to him for a few minutes, he had his religion that he trusted was not a true Bible-believing religion, one of the Christian religions that trust in themselves. People will spend hundreds of dollars to travel thousands of dollars to travel to prophecy conferences. They'll go all around the world. They'll go on cruises to study all of the mystical parts of the Bible that no one has ever thought about before and totally ignore. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now that's scary to me. How medieval monks could argue in their monastery for well over a thousand years the number of angels that could dance on the head of a pin. And if you think I'm making this up, I'm not. And yet ignore the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God put some of these things in the Bible that are just you know, I tried to think of what someone who lived 500 years ago who only knew about their one little spot, thought the whole earth revolved around their little castle 
and the hundred or so people that lived in the environs around that castle. And to them, that was the entire world. They thought the world was flat and Columbus would sail off the end. And what would he land in? Very few people actually thought that in 1492. But some historian grabbed a hold of it and put it in a history book. You know why? Because it makes it interesting. It doesn't have to be reality to be history. It needs to be interesting, right? And so as we look at our Bible... The thing that we need to be challenged with, if after 2,000 years, we can look in this chapter that would have been a total mystery to anyone comprehending it, and then grab a hold of physical phenomena that we know about, and we can see how these things would literally be fulfilled. How much more should we be eager to dig in and grab a hold of that part where it says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Amen? I mean, do I have to preach that hard on that to get an amen here in our church? You know what? It's work to show up to church. But was the writer of Hebrews being literal when he said, you need to show up? Yeah, absolutely so. Was he absolutely literal when he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? Yes, he was. Was he being absolutely literal when he said, Love your enemies? Yeah. Was he absolutely literal when he said, Beware of the root of bitterness springing up there with many be defiled. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you, there's an awful lot of scripture that we do well to take heed to. Literally. Now, I hope I didn't lose you in all of our sorting through the details of the trumpets. But the whole illustration I believe that God has given us in these last days is if we can understand these things literally, then we better get a hold of the rest of this book that we don't have a problem understanding literally. And by the way, Paul the Apostle didn't have a problem understanding literally in the first century. And no one since that point has had a problem understanding literally. We'd better stand firmly upon the words of this book called the Bible. Instead of worrying about things we don't understand, let's start obeying that part which we do. And every one of us needs improvement there. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful, uh, at least I'm thankful, that we live in a time that we can look at these fantastic unbelievable statements in the book of Revelation and say, well, yeah, we could understand how that could be accomplished. And Lord, we don't look forward to these things, nor do we uh, have any relish or joy in this horrible great destruction. Yet we know that you are. 
the great God and the things that you have written in your word, you will do. But Lord, help us to be mindful of so many parts of the scripture that need not to be studied in this way to understood, be understood very literally and very clearly. Lord, that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to bring these verses to our minds and to our hearts and help us to be biblical literalists, to literally apply the scriptures to our lives. Lord, let us do this on a daily basis that we may be worthy to walk with you in white, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done through us. It's in your name we pray. As we often do, let's not say amen quite yet. We'll let the piano...